All right, let's go ahead and get started since we're about one minute past. Um, I want to be faithful again to everybody's time. I know you guys are busy wheeling and dealing, making the world go round, or retired and just hanging out. <laughs> Whichever, we're glad to have you. We, we started a little bit in Deuteronomy 10 last week because that section extended from chapter 9 on into 10. And at the end of the section, it was about warning Israel, don't think that your don't think that the Canaanites who you're going in to drive out as my means of judgment, God's telling them, don't think that their wickedness is a, a tacit endorsement of your righteousness. Uh, and chapter 10, chapter 9 was all about how those two things are not related. The righteousness of Israel is not related to the wickedness of the Canaanites. And that's a trap that's easy to fall into to think. Whenever we, I mean, that's just human nature. You do something bad and somebody calls you on it, what do you do? You point to people that do something worse. Every kid's done that since they were little, you know, and we continue to do that. Uh, politicians do that. You call out the Democrats for something and they'll point to the Republicans that did it. And you call out the Republicans, they'll point to the Democrats. Well, at least we aren't so-and-so. Uh, it's just human nature. Instead of facing our own um, iniquity, our own sin, our own shortcomings, when we're called out, we want to shift. We want to shift the blame. Or we want to point to people who are worse as if their badness makes our badness any better. And so that's something that God doesn't tolerate from individuals, and He doesn't tolerate it from nations, especially His covenant nation. Take note of it. Just watch when you're reading the paper, when you're perusing social media and seeing articles on things, when you're listening to people, leaders, politicians, whoever, when you're listening to them speak, uh, take note of how often you see this. You'll, you'll be amazed every time something's pointed out uh, negative about something. <laughs> yeah, at least you're not as bad as me. Yeah, so it's, it's, a it's a trait that permeates all of humanity. It's nothing new. But it is something that God wants Israel, he, he put on record for them to know specifically they're not to do that. That they are to, you know, he'll later say through the prophets, judgment begins at the house of the Lord. And that's, you know, one of the things that we as believers can take away from the history of Israel. Remember, the history of Israel is written in part to give us lesson on how God relates to his people under that covenant so that we can see how he wants to relate to people, his people under our covenant because he doesn't change. The covenant conditions change, the geography changes, the external rituals change, but the, the God who gave all that doesn't change. And so he, when he does, when he, when he calls us on something, you know, he wants us to just squarely take it and be like, okay, yes, I received that discipline and I need to repent of that. Even if everybody else is doing stuff so much worse, I need to get my house in order. I need to take the plank out of my eye so that then I can help my brother take the speck out of his. As, you know, Jesus picked up on all these kind of themes when he preached on his earthly ministry as well. So God tells them that, makes sure that they remember, gives them a lesson from the past. In other words, how they almost completely blew it when it came to the covenant. And he's talking to the people whose parents were the ones who did it. And then in verse 6, there's, there's a little rooting it back into uh, geography and into chronology. There's a little aside, it's parenthetical. If you have an NIV, they actually put it in parentheses. 
but it gives a little record of, again, just so the people, this is a long speech Moses is giving. It's, it's, it's spanning chapters. So this little editorial edition, whether it was by Moses or someone later, is kind of anchoring it back into the journeys that Israel was taking from Exodus to Numbers. And so it says, verse 6, the Israelites traveled from the wells of the Jaconites to Moserah. There Aaron died and was buried, and Eleazar his son succeeded him as priest. From there they traveled to Gudgadah and on to Jatbathah, a land with streams of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister and to pronounce blessings in his name as they still do today. That is why the Levites have no share or inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance as the Lord your God told them. This was recapping basically what we read uh, last year, Numbers chapter 3. And it's just saying, remember, this is why. So you're wondering, why don't the Levites have any land like the rest of the tribes? Why don't they get an inheritance? Well, because God is their inheritance and they minister in the tabernacle and in the cities where they're appointed to be uh, uh, custodians of the law, teachers of the law, and, and preservers of the worship, the system of Israelite worship. So now Moses jumps back into what was going on at that time. He says, now... I stayed on the mountain 40 days and nights as I did the first time. And the Lord listened to me this time also. It was not his will to destroy you. This is Exodus 32, 33. He, God promised, he said, I'll destroy the, all this people and start over with you, Moses. And Moses begged and pleaded and fasted on behalf of the people. And God actually, we saw last week, relented. He, he allowed himself once again to be talked down from, his, uh, from what he had expressed that he would do. And so, uh, verse 11, Go, the Lord said to me, and lead the people on their way, so that they may enter and possess the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. So in other words, the covenant almost was lost. The people were almost destroyed. Moses interceded. It wasn't their righteousness. It was his intercession. And God said, okay, you get one do-over. And I'm going to give it to you. So he, he you know, reinstated the covenant new tablets inscribed by his finger, all that stuff. And he said, go and possess, the, you can go possess the land. You, the plan will continue on. You have one major strike, I'm going to give you that one, but I'm not going to completely negate it. So it's not one and done. There's, they get a chance for, um, they, based on repentance, they get grace extended to them. So now, that's kind of bringing him up to Moses, who's speaking to this generation, he says, now, verse 12, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God? He's going to say five things that, that God wants of them. Fear the Lord your God, walk in all his ways, love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and observe the Lord's commandments and decrees that I'm giving you today for your own good. This is a key point that gets overlooked when we think about the law, especially those of us on this side of the cross. We look back and go, oh man, I'm glad we don't live under the law. All the burden requirements and things and the failures and the legalism and this and that. That's on this side of the Jesus event. On that side, before God actually came and took on human flesh and entered into his relationship with Israel, took their sin on the cross, paid the ultimate sacrifice, like before all of that, 
the way that you existed in relationship with the gods is you tried your best to appease them by giving them stuff and hoped that one of them would treat you well or at least not treat you like as an enemy. So in the ancient world, the world of Canaan, the world of Egypt, the world of Assyria, Babylon, Mesopotamia, peoples, you had all of these gods and you had your local gods and so now I'm in the land where our god is, you know, Baal, whatever. And our god is, you know, Marduk, the god of Babylon. And our god is Osiris or Ra or any of these Egyptian gods. You kind of picked your god, the one that you wanted to gain the favor of, and then you worship that god through offering sacrifices, through having a little idol, like a little good luck charm, and they would keep it in your house, and you would maybe give little gifts to it, or you would pray to it, and that was your touchstone, that was your link, your lifeline to the god who you were hoping would hear when he wasn't busy doing all the other stuff that the gods did, eating, sleeping, having sex, you know, that's what the gods did, basically. That's pretty much all they did. And you hoped that your petition reached that God's ears and that he would at least look at you and go, okay, I don't hate him. Okay, I'm not going to destroy her. Okay, I will not send a disease on his cattle. Okay, I will, I will allow her to have children. Like, that's what you hoped. You tried to appease the gods. You offer ever greater gifts. And in times of danger, you do stuff to get their attention. So you do everything from self-mutilation, like cutting yourself, carving yourself, tattooing yourself to get their attention, whatever, to set yourself apart as one of their worshipers. Or ritual orgies, the fertility gods, you wanted them to send their reign on the land, which was their sex act. Then you committed a sex act at the high place to that god with one of their worshipers or one of their temple workers. And that would hopefully get the god's attention and then they would bless your lands. So this is how the system worked in the ancient world. And what Israel is saying, what God's saying to Israel, Moses is telling me, he says, look, here's what you have to do. None of the other gods said this. None of the other gods gave their worshipers a plan. Here's what you do. God entered into a contract with Israel. That's what this covenant is that Deuteronomy is. He's entering into a relationship with them on a national level. No other God had ever done that. And he's saying, I'm going to be what you look to mighty kings and warlords for, protection and sustenance and, and, and all. I'm going to be that for you. And I can do the things that all of those other kings and all of those other warlords and all of the other people you would go to, I can do things that they can't. Why? Because I created everything. I can do things the other gods can't. Why? Because they don't exist. People made them up. At best, they're demons who have lured people into worshiping them as gods. At worst, they're figments of people's imagination. And so God's saying, I'm the one true God. So do you want a relationship with me? Great. Here's all you have to do. And the five things, he lists the five things. Fear, walk, love, serve, observe. That's what everything in the rest of Deuteronomy, from the next chapter, or the next section, because this section actually spills into chapter 11, but the next section of the book, which starts in chapter 12, all the way through chapter 26, is going to unpack these five things. How, how do you, Israel, in this first century Palestine area, or first, uh, second millennium Palestine area that we call Canaan, how do you love, fear, serve, observe? How do you do that? And God had told the previous generation how in Exodus and Leviticus, 
And so now he's reinstating it to this generation. Here's how you're going to do it. Here's what it's going to look like in your setting. And then, lo and behold, in the New Covenant, which the, old, the end of Deuteronomy will actually predict that they're going to fail. The Deuteronomy predicts failure. And then it predicts a time after the failure when God reinstates a new covenant that fixes the problem that this covenant suffered from, which is the human heart is still messed up. Even Deuteronomy predicts that there will be a new covenant. So then we fast forward to the new covenant. Jesus comes, he inaugurates it. He, he, he brings it about, sends his disciples, his apostles out to, to tell the world and to take the great commission to bring the Gentiles into Israel, basically, spiritually speaking. And then the New Testament, the letters that the New Testament writers do the same thing that Deuteronomy does. They tell them, now this is what it looks like for you to live under the covenant in Corinth in Ephesus, in the area of the Galatian, or Galatia. You know, that's what those letters in the New Testament do. They do the equivalent of what the laws in the Old Testament did for Israel. So there doesn't, we don't want to put too sharp a distinction between law and gospel, because the law was the pre-incarnate Jesus form of the gospel. The law gave us the prototype for the gospel. Notice the law. This is not, he's not saying, Israel, this is how you earn my love. He's not saying, Israel, this is how you earn your salvation. He's already spent all these opening chapters describing and walking them through the fact that they already were saved. That's what the Exodus was. So grace came first. Only after grace, then came law. Then came, here's how you're going to live. That's the exact same pattern in the New Testament. Grace comes first, but then after salvation, there is the New Testament ethic, how you live, how you walk as a follower of Jesus, how you walk in his ways. That's just what the law does for Israel. So you don't want to ever pit those two against each other necessarily, or at least without a lot of nuancing, which Paul does in the books where he seems to be speaking against the law. If you read those books and read the whole context you see he's actually only speaking against a misuse of the law and its permanence rather than its temporary nature and so in Galatians and Romans when he starts to it seems like oh yeah Paul's against the law and that's how Martin Luther and some others read it and kind of passed it on it's not really the case he wasn't against the law he was against living the law of the old covenant in the age of the new covenant because that God has a law for the new covenant which is all of the ethic, all of the, the directions that he gives to his congregations. Paul, Peter, you know, all those who wrote New Testament books. So just on a big picture level, that's a way to look at, when you see the Old Testament law, look at it that way. This is how God's people who have already been saved are supposed to live out that salvation in the midst of the culture that God called them into, which in their case is the second millennium B.C. land of Canaan. Middle East area, Palestine, today's Israel, Jordan, that area. So that's what God's doing, and that's what He's going to unpack in the coming week or so. And He says, verse 14, To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest of heavens, the earth and everything in it. So this is showing God's transcendence. He's saying God's, and that first word, heavens, it's the, the whole phrase, there, there's no difference between the word heaven and the word sky in Hebrew. It's the same word. 
It's just Shemayim. So he's saying God's the God of the Shemayim, which is like what we would call the sky, and the Shemayim, Shemayim, like the heaven of heavens, the sky of skies, which what we would think of, we would call that the cosmos, or the place outside of this, just where God dwells, or what's above the sky. So it's a superlative way of saying, you know, God's the God of up there, and even beyond what's up there. So it's a way of denoting totality. And he's the God of the earth. All the land. See, God, in, in Israel's God, this is new. In the history of humanity up to this point, this is a new thing that's distinct to Israel. They believed that there was one God over everything. All the other peoples around them believed that there were territorial gods. And those gods fought against each other. And when they fought, the armies of the people who worshipped them went to war that was viewed as the gods of Egypt are fighting the gods of Assyria. And if Egypt beats Assyria, that means the Egyptian gods beat the Assyrian gods and they have the power in this area. Go back to Assyria and worship your gods there. In Egypt, our gods rule. They were like mob bosses of local areas. There's a strong man here and a strong man there. And while you're here, you better obey this guy. But when you get into this ter territory, you better obey this guy. And if they ever go to war, the stronger one wins. That's how the ancients viewed the deity. And so Israel, what a new contribution in the history of mankind that they're bringing to the table for the first time is there's a God who's over all of it. No matter how high you go there or how low you go down here, east to west, north to south, there's only one God. Now we take this for granted because we're post-enlightenment where we think polytheism is you know, primitive and barbaric. And, but this is a radical concept in world history. And even today, and you go to the Eastern Hemisphere, you know, go to India, polytheism is the norm. They think it's weird that there's, if there is one God, they'd say it's kind of this Hindu doctrine of like, you know, there's this one God that's manifested in all these 330 million gods, but it's really one, but it's all. The, so even in a modern culture today, a modern nation like India, which is very, you know, cutting edge in terms of technology and um, just the modern world, there's still the pull to idolatry that this God does his thing here, this God does his thing here, this God does her thing there, and I just need to appease the right ones, and my life will be good. And so what God's telling Israel is, nope, it's very simple. There's one God, I'm him, everything you could need is controlled by me, and here's how you make sure that you're on my good side. It's that, that in and of itself is revolutionary to people in the ancient world because they finally have a tangible means of ensuring, not just making it possible that the gods will be on their side, but ensuring that the God, the one God, will be on their side. Like, like here's what you do, Israel. And so for them, it's incredibly good news. The Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. God's rules for Israel were not put so that uh, God would be happy. They were put so that Israel would live the way God had wanted them to live because that would be the way that was good for them. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's been done to death in sermons, but you, you know, like the illustration is when, you, when your kid says, I want to have ice cream every meal. You're like, no, you can't. Well, I want it. No, you can't. Well, then let me have candy for breakfast. And, and no, no, no. Your kid is hearing no, and they're thinking, well, you just don't want me to have fun, or you just don't want to give me what I want, or you just want to be the boss. 
That's what kids hear because their minds aren't developed and they can't see the bigger picture. The parent, the good parent at least, knows, no, the reason is because what you're asking for is destructive to you. And even though you don't see how it can be destructive to you, I do. So I'm not giving it to you. I'm refusing it to you. That's God's, that's what God still does today. You know, so when we think like, well, why can't I do what I want with my body? Why can't I enter into sexual relationships with who I want, when I want? Why can't I love how I want to love? You know, I was made to give my love to lots of people. Why should I be tied down with just one person and this? And God's, God is the parent who's saying, no, it's destructive to you. What I'm telling you is for your good. You may not see it. And even today, people with all kinds of any time God puts a limit, they can't see it. They don't understand. Why is it a bad thing? But God, from his perspective, is like, because I made you and I made it. And I'm at whatever the it is. I'm using sex as an example because we're just a sexual culture. But anything that we're wanting that God says no, it's for our good. And that's the thing. Once that gets lost, once you forget, it's all the way back to the garden, all the way back to Genesis 3. What did Eve do? She believed the lie of the serpent, the insinuation that God was trying to hold back something good for her. And so she took that good thing for herself. It turned out that was the worst thing. That's how it's been ever since. That's where faith comes in, that we have to trust the character of the God who says no, even when we don't see why he's saying no. And Israel was going to have to learn to do that. But if they did, if they just trusted that his no meant no, and it was for their good, then God would take care of everything that they wanted anyway. And so that's the warning. So he says, verse 16, he uses a metaphor here, circumcise your hearts, literally cut off the foreskin of your hearts, is what the Hebrew says. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's using the image going all the way back to Abraham, that for Abraham's offspring, the ones who God made this promise to, all those who walk in the faith of Abraham, the mark of that covenant was circumcision. And circumcision was the, to symbolize this continuation of this relationship through the seed of Abraham, and, and it was kind of the mark of his people, literally in the flesh of every male who would then perpetuate that seed. And it was on the thing that the seed actually comes out of, if you want to get not too graphic. But uh, all of that imagery of circumcision and God saying, okay, so that thing, that outward expression, do that to your inner self. Do that to your heart. And again, we've said in Hebrew, heart means your heart, your mind, your inner person. It doesn't just mean the part of you that's emotional. It means your rational self, your will, your mind. We would say mind and heart and make them two separate things. But in Hebrew, it's one thing. So it's basically like, hey, do that circumcision thing that you all pride yourself on as showing that you're Abraham's offspring, but do it inwardly as well. Do it inwardly. And Jesus would criticize the Jewish leaders in his day because they were doing the external, but their hearts were still uncircumcised, so to speak. And so he's telling them, do that, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. We talked about stiff-necked, means like an animal, when it stiffens its neck, you want to lead it this way, there's water over here, there's food over here, there's oats over here, there's whatever, and it just wants to be stiff and sit there and stay on the nibbling on the shrubs of the dirt that it's at. And God's saying, don't be like that, don't be like a stubborn animal. So circumcise your hearts, don't be like a stubborn animal. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. So he's God of all the gods, that's a supernatural term, and he's Lord of all the lords, that's a, a human term. 
He's it. So there's nothing else you have to fear. The great God and mighty, awesome, who shows no partiality, literally the Hebrew is who lifts no faces, which is kind of how before rendering a judgment you want to look at the person, and if it's somebody you know, then the judge might give them a more lenient sentence or vice versa. And the, the figure of speech is, comes from that. And he's saying, no, God doesn't do that. God is no respecter of persons. He's impartial. He treats everyone with justice and fairness um, and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the immigrant or alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are immigrants or aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. That term ger in Hebrew, alien, immigrant, you know, we don't have it. It just means somebody who's in the country who was not from there and doesn't have the full rights of the people that are. So that would, all of that would be covered under this concept. And so God's saying, you're going to go into a land and there are going to be people coming and going because where God's going to settle them is at the center of this highway in the ancient world of empires coming and going. They're going to be foreigners. Love them. Not tolerate them. Not don't deport them. Not, you know, love them. Actually treat them the way I treat you is what God's commanding. This is His ethic that He wants. And because I'm the one who does that, giving Him food and clothing. This just has so much to say in how we look at our own political situation. But the, the, however, the solution to problems of things like borders and immigrants and citizenship and all that Whatever the political solutions are, the thing that should underlie those solutions should be this attitude of love. You're free to disagree on what that love looks like in person, obviously. You know, tough love, send you back, make your country better. Or accepting love, stay here, make our country better. Doesn't matter. Christians are free to argue on that and you'll come to different political conclusions. But people on both sides of that debate... The driving motive, if you claim to be part of God's people, the driving motive has to be this love for the immigrant and of the God who feeds and clothes the immigrant. And then from there, do with that what you will. Uh, but that's God's ethic. And you're to love those who are aliens for, their, for you yourselves are aliens in Egypt. So he wraps it up, verse 20. Fear the Lord your God and serve Him. Cling to Him. NIV says hold fast, but it's the verb cling, dabach. It means to cleave. It's the actual word that got back in Genesis. It says, for this reason, the man will leave his mother and father and cling to or be joined to his wife. And it describes the sexual joining, the relationship, the marriage intimacy. That's the word being used. Because God always treats his relationship with Israel like a marriage. And so hold fast or cling to him, cleave to him, and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. Your forefathers who went down to Egypt were 70 in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars in the sky. A direct quote back to the Abraham promise in Genesis 15. And God's telling them, that promise that I made to your forefather, Abraham, you are in it. You are fulfilling it. And it's already partially been fulfilled because you are, and uses the figure of speech, numerous as the stars in the sky. There were 70 of you at the end of Genesis. By the beginning of Exodus, there are thousands of you, countless thousands. And so God's reminding them, I've brought you this far. I've done this for you because I'm devoted to your forefathers. If you want this relationship with me to continue as it is, just 
Live in it. Just walk in it. Do these things. Have a heart like mine towards the people around you. That's how you will live in the land. And the last section, he's going to spell out the promises of what that will require or what that will entail and a little bit of the curses that will happen if they don't do it. And then chapter 12 will begin the actual recap of the law. So here's how you're going to live in the land. So that's it. We're out of time exactly. Have a great week, everybody. Um, Next week, I will not be here, but Chris Thayer, my friend who's a local pastor, uh, he will be here teaching, and he's awesome. So enjoy that. Uh, There's plenty of food left. There's desserts, so you guys take some if you want it. Have a great week.